This is Monday Morning QB, September 21st, 2020. I'm Askiya Muhammad. Today on the show, the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As early voting has already begun, voter suppression efforts are already underway. FBI Director Christopher Wray defied the president in testimony before Congress. Sexual violence against women at an ICE detention center. Making polluters pay for the damage they cause to the environment and combating ever-present white supremacy in this country. All that and more, stay with us. It was a weekend of mourning and reflection across the United States as we learned of the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, hearts and minds turn to politics with the expectation that President Trump will announce this week his nominee to take Ginsburg's place on the high court. On Saturday, leaders of four major civil rights and legal rights advocacy organizations held a press call to draw attention to what's at stake if Trump and the GOP are successful in confirming a successor to Justice Ginsburg so close to the upcoming election. Among them was Vanita Gupta, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Here are her comments from that call. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Vanita Gupta, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. It's a coalition of more than 220 national civil and human rights organizations working to build an America as good as its ideals. Last night, we lost a true hero and an icon. And the Leadership Conference joins the nation in grieving the tremendous loss of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we extend our condolences to her family and her loved ones. Justice Ginsburg was a principled, dignified defender of justice for all. She was a pioneer in every way. She dedicated her entire career on and off the court to protect rights for women and LGBTQ people, and advancing justice for millions in America and the most vulnerable communities amongst us. Her wisdom reminds us that the Supreme Court belongs to all of us, not to any party or politician. Right now, a global pandemic's claimed the lives of over 200,000 Americans. Calls for racial justice and an end to systemic racism are intensifying. An election is already underway and people are already voting across the country. Now is not the time for the Senate to consider a third Trump justice. There simply cannot be any consideration of a nomination until after the inauguration. Trump has promised to select a third justice who will devastate our hard fought civil and human rights and hasten the end of Roe versus Wade and healthcare access for millions of people. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has failed to move any legislation that would matter to the people in America recently to address pandemic, secure voting rights, tackle police accountability, in the hours after Justice Ginsburg's passing, shamelessly committed to a vote on the still unannounced nominee. This is the same McConnell who previously blocked President Obama's nominee, announced nine months before an election. Our rights are at risk, our future's on the line, and what we do now is going to make a difference. And it's why we're ready to fight to make the Supreme Court ours and not Trump's. There's no question that voters have the power right now. And there's no question that voters are energized to show up and cast their ballots early. 
During the first week of voting in North Carolina, already 100,000 residents cast their absentee ballots. And in Virginia, where early voting kicked off yesterday, lines have been wrapped around blocks. And just this morning, voters were standing in line and said that Justice, Ginsburg pass Justice Ginsburg's passing was motivating them to get to the polls even more. The American people must decide who selects and confirms the next Supreme Court nominee. And you're seeing across television and social media clips of Republican senators saying back in 2016, setting a rule about not moving forward with a nominee uh, in an election year. We've gonna hold them to their words and voters are gonna hold them to their words. Senators must refuse to consider any nominee until after inauguration. And I wanna put a pointed fact on this. In fact, in 2016, Senator Lindsey Graham, now chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee said, I want to, you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, Let's let the next president, whoever it may be, make, make that nomination. And we're gonna hold him to that promise. Justice Ginsburg magnified the Supreme Court's importance for millions of Americans. It would be an insult to her legacy for this president to select a justice he promises will assail our rights and undermine, upend, and unravel our democratic norms for generations. The Senate failed us by rubber stamping Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and they cannot fail again. People in America know what's at stake. We know what Justice Ginsburg's seat means, what her legacy means. And we know that the decision of who sits on the Supreme Court will touch everyone's life in America. And on Justice Ginsburg's deathbed, she said, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. And so we will fight this for this fervently and we will give this all we have. And we're, this is a fight we're gonna win. Thank you. Vanita Gupta, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, taking part in the Saturday press call on the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg anticipated increased voter suppression in her dissent against the court's Shelby County v. Holder decision. Julie Hauck, with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, applauded Ginsburg's dissent and observed that voter suppression efforts are already underway. As early in-person voting began Friday in Fairfax, Virginia, intimidation efforts began as well and robocalls have also been used to suppress the vote. In Michigan, there was a recent attempt to uh, send robocalls to voters to uh, dissuade them from using absentee ballots, making false claims that the information they provide to obtain absentee ballots could be used by law enforcement or debt collectors or for COVID contact tracing purposes and the like, which is completely false. Um, and it was intended, in our view, to dissuade voters from using absentee ballots in Michigan. It occurred, I think, in a few other states as well. Um, in past elections, we've seen um, incidents where voters received mailers with uh, inflammatory language or false information 
uh, about election days or times and getting to the polls. Um, and we've also seen incidents of baseless uh, challenges to voters, both before and on election day, uh, where voters are targeted for challenges based on things such as, you know, false accusations of having moved from their residence or based on a misunderstanding of the law that allows in many states voters to temporarily be out of the jurisdiction. And that's occurring a lot this time around because of COVID, where some voters may have relocated from their usual place of residence and are at a summer home even or elsewhere because uh, they're trying to avoid uh, the COVID infection. So um, we, we're seeing a possibility of a, a wide array of um, intimidation tactics, including on social media where false or misinformation is being provided about um, the election process and uh, is intended to dissuade voters from voting, either in person or uh, by mail or elsewhere. I read once that half of the registered don't vote and half of the eligible don't register. Why wouldn't people want everybody to vote? You know, that's a very good question. And I think everyone who is eligible to vote should feel that they have the right to register and cast their ballots for the candidates they choose to elect. Um, but there are certain uh, people in this country who believe otherwise and believe that once you give the franchise to people of color, to students, to seniors, and other groups that uh, don't you, they don't think will vote for their candidates, they create these disinformation and intimidation tactics to suppress the vote. There are reports that certain religious groups Christian religious groups are not giving Bible studies, but rather giving people uh, training on how to suppress the vote. Is that an accurate report or is that more um, uh, fake news? You know, I know that uh, some organizations, including True the Vote, have reportedly been recruiting volunteers to engage in uh, poll watching activities, as they call it. Um, that could lead to intimidation tactics at the polls. I'm not privy to what they're discussing in their meetings. However, there have been some reports that says True the Vote is enlisting uh, poll monitors and people to um, make challenges to voters who are voting at the polls or before Election Day. So um, we haven't seen that this cycle, but in other cycles, True the Vote has essentially put out false information uh, about uh, voting by mail and also uh, fraudulent voting, which were completely unfounded and actually is ironic given the name of the organization is True the Vote. It oftentimes is not uh, accurate as they are spreading misinformation and disinformation about fraudulent voting in this country, which, as I said, is virtually non-existent. How do those who are interested in seeing that every vote gets cast and every ballot gets counted fight back against these uh, tactics to suppress the vote? Well, my organization, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, works in coalition with the largest, longest-running voter protection coalition in the country. Uh, it's completely nonpartisan. We offer the 866-OUR-VOTE hotline where voters can call in for um, advice and information about voting or to report uh, suppressive activities that are occurring um, so so we can help intervene to help them either 
through advocacy with election officials or in some in some occasions taking a legal action to respond to these tactics. The recently departed uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote a powerful dissent and the lawyers committee made a recent statement about her legacy and that dissent. Uh, what was significant about her dissent with relation to voting rights? Well, Justice Ginsburg said in her dissent in the Shelby County versus Holder case that, uh, quote, race-based voter voting discrimination still exists, end quote, and cautioned that gutting the act's protections against voting discrimination was, quote, like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet, end quote. And and she was she was completely correct because Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was very successful because it required jurisdictions with a history of voting discrimination to submit any plans to change voting uh, rules or access to the Department of Justice for what was called preclearance. That meant they had to submit these plans to DOJ. DOJ would look at those plans and determine whether there was evidence those uh, changes would discriminate against minority or voters or um, would have the effect of diluting minority voting strength. And in many cases, it either prevented those changes from going into effect in the first place and also had a deterrent effect on jurisdictions from even trying to enact discriminatory voting changes. So it really served like an umbrella to prevent uh, voters from being suppressed or having minority voting strength diluted by these voting changes that were occurring across uh, jurisdictions with a history of voting discrimination. As a result, within a very short time after that decision was rendered by the Supreme Court, there was a rush to change voting um, requirements around the states, including in Texas and North Carolina, the race to enact um, strict voter ID laws that uh, disproportionately disadvantaged minority voters. Um, so, you know, she was exactly right that as soon as that umbrella was taken away, voting changes to suppress the vote and to disadvantage minority voters came raining down. Is there a hotline established by the Lawyers Committee for people concerned about voter suppression to contact, uh, sound the alarm, or get assistance? Yes, the Lawyers Committee uh, hosts the National 866-R-Vote hotline where Voters who have questions or concerns can call into that hotline and get information and assistance if they face these types of voter suppressive activities or just even have general questions about how to access voting in their jurisdictions. Uh, we also now have a chat function uh, where voters can use that chat function to get connected to a trained volunteer uh, and, and our website is 866rvote.org. And so the, the hotline is available now currently live 99 uh, weekdays and I believe 10 to 7 on the weekends uh, and we'll be expanding the access to the hotline for live assistance as we get closer to election day. Julie Howe with the Lawyers Committee. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me.
FBI Director Christopher Wray made headlines last week when he directly contradicted claims made by Trump regarding Russian election interference and the threat of white supremacy. Wray told the House Homeland Security Committee on Thursday that racially motivated violent extremism make up the bulk of domestic terror threats and that Russia is very active in spreading misinformation about November's election. When asked, Trump would not rule out firing Ray over his testimony. For more, we go to reporter Chris Banger Drowns. FBI Director Christopher Ray is a Trump appointee, but unlike most of the president's other political personnel, Ray has been willing to challenge Trump's ideas. Ray and Trump first disagreed in February 2018, just six months after Ray's appointment over an FBI background check on then-Staff Secretary Rob Porter. Last winter, Ray made a more significant stand against Trump, backing a watchdog report that said the FBI's investigation into Russian election interference was properly launched. But Ray's most recent disagreements with the president may portend his downfall. When asked whether he would remove Ray over his testimony to Congress last week, Trump said, quote, We're looking at a lot of different things, and I did not like his answers yesterday, and I'm not sure he liked them either. I'm sure he probably would agree with me, end quote. So what were Ray's answers last week? Committee Chairman Benny Thompson asked about Trump's preferred foil, Antifa. We look at Antifa as more of an ideology or a movement than an organization. Uh, To be clear, we do have quite a number of properly predicated domestic terrorism investigations into violent anarchist extremists, any number of whom self-identify with the Antifa movement. And that's part of this broader group of domestic violent extremists that I'm talking about. But it's just one part of it. We also have the racially motivated violent extremists, the Mm -hmm. militia types, uh, and others. Ray's general approach to homegrown extremism differs from Trump's near-exclusive focus on Antifa as, quote, bad, really bad. Let me start with this. As a general rule, we have each year lately, we've been having roughly a thousand domestic terrorism investigations a year. Uh, It's higher than that this year. Yeah. Uh, You know, a good bit north of a thousand this year. Um, I know that we've had about 120 arrests for domestic terrorism this year. Now, that number of investigations, the 1,000-plus and the 120 arrests, that's domestic terrorism across the board, right? Everything from racially motivated violent extremists to violent anarchist extremists, militia types, sovereign citizens, you name it. Um, Of the domestic terrorism threats... We, uh, last year, elevated racially motivated violent extremism uh, to be a national threat priority commensurate with uh, homegrown violent extremists. That's the jihadist-inspired people here and with ISIS. Ray's elevation of domestic terror threats might dovetail with Trump's insistence on a law and order strategy in the election. But the domestic terrorists that Trump wants, namely violent leftists, aren't the ones he necessarily has. Ray highlights racially motivated violent extremism as the most potent domestic terror threat to the country. Within the racially racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, 
the, I would say the biggest chunk of those, I can't give you a percentage, but the biggest chunk of that are individuals who are motivated by some form of white supreme, supremacist uh, ideology. And that's the, that group, the racially motivated violent extremists, has been responsible for the most lethal activity of the last few years. I will say, just as a point of clarification, this year, uh, the lethal attacks that we've seen, I think, have all been from anti-government or anti-authority types. But, but if you go back over the last few years, it's been the racially motivated violent extremists that had the most lethal attacks in the, in the homeland. The relative threat of Antifa and white supremacy isn't the only disagreement shared by Trump and his FBI director. While Trump has spent much of his time in office dismissing allegations of Russian collusion or interference in U.S. elections, and instead spotlighting actions by China and Iran, Ray and others in the intelligence community have pointed again to Russia as the primary threat of interference in this November's election. Yes, I think uh, the intelligence community's consensus uh, is that Russia continues to try to influence our elections, um, primarily through what we would call malign foreign influence, as opposed to what we saw in 2016, where there was also an effort to target election infrastructure, you know, cyber targeting. We have not seen that second part yet this year or this cycle, uh, but we certainly have seen very active, very active uh, efforts by the Russians to influence our election in 2020 uh, through what I would call more the malign foreign influence uh, side of things. Social media, use of of proxies, uh, state media, online journals, uh, et cetera, an effort to both sow divisiveness and discord. Uh, and, and I think the intelligence community has, has uh, assessed this publicly uh, to primarily to denigrate Vice President Biden and what the Russians see as kind of an anti-Russian establishment. Um, that's, that's essentially what we're seeing in 2020. One of the core strategies of Russian interference and of the Trump campaign itself has been to sow uncertainty about the legitimacy of our election system and the results it produces. While Ray says Russia's activities haven't escalated to what we saw in 2016, he still worries about the chilling effect that has on voting. I think in many ways what concerns me the most um, is the steady drumbeat uh, of misinformation um, and and sort of uh, amplification of smaller cyber intrusions that contribute over time. I worry that they will contribute over time to a lack of confidence of American uh, voters and citizens uh, in the, um, uh, the validity of their vote. Uh, I think that would be a perception, not a reality. I think Americans can and should have confidence in our election system and certainly in our democracy. But I worry that people will, will take on a feeling of futility uh, because of all of the noise and confusion that's generated. And that's a very hard problem to combat. That's FBI Director Christopher Ray testifying before the House Homeland Security Committee last week for Monday Morning QB. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. Recent attention has been given to the issue of sexual violence in ICE detention. 
as women are coming out about their sexual abuse at the hands of guards and other authorities in these facilities. Many are questioning if these reports are reflective of a systemic issue or just isolated incidents. Amara Evering reports on specific incidents of sexual assault. This segment may be distressing for some listeners. As those in ICE detention continue to be affected by the spread of the coronavirus, another underlying epidemic has been festering in facilities for years, that is, systematic sexual violence. Detainees have continually experienced widespread sexual assault and harassment, mounting to thousands of complaints and reports. This recently received increased attention when a woman at a detention center in El Paso, Texas, spoke out about her sexual assault and the rampant culture of sexual violence at her facility. I spoke with her lawyer, Linda Corchado, who is the director of legal services at Las Americas. Corchado addressed the vulnerability of detainees in this environment. Their lives are, are so vulnerable and the things that they do have are so basic. And when you begin to alter and disturb even that, it's incredibly traumatic for them to process it and experience it. ICE facilities have been documented to have substandard medical care, cleanliness, and hygiene. Reports of medical negligence and a lack of basic necessities like soap has been the cause of health issues and even fatalities. And this is particularly true for immigrant women. In situations where detainees are made vulnerable by these poor conditions, guards use this as leverage to coerce detained women into sexual contact. So they make straight barters with them, free soap, clean uniforms, uniforms that will fit them better. The exploitation of the basic need of hygiene is not the only tactic used by guards in these facilities. It has recently been reported that guards targeted women at a detention center who were receiving medication for depression and anxiety because they were relatively isolated and that area had a camera blind spot. But no matter what need is being exploited, whether that be hygiene or medication, these women have little control over what happens to them in these facilities. I don't think any woman has the freedom and liberty to say no in a situation like that because she has no liberty, she has no freedom, she can't just walk away. Where would she walk to? Being detained for these women also means being trapped under the continual authority of the people who harass and abuse them this was the case for a woman that Corchado spoke with. One issue that was really alarming to me was one detained woman who I was told was forced to have an encounter with a guard. And somewhere in the middle, she began to become confused about her emotions and how she felt. She was about 20 years old. She's very young. I was very worried about her because she actually attempted suicide earlier this year. And it just seemed like all of the repercussions of this encounters was really impacting her in a negative way. And the lasting implications of sexual trauma could be emotionally crippling, whether that be in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder, severe anxiety and depression, continual flashbacks, or suicidal ideation. Because of this, sexual violence within immigrant detention has been classified as a form of torture and prohibited by international treaties. Yet reports of sexual violence continue. There was a horrific report earlier this year of a woman who was raped at another facility and she actually gave birth to the child of a guard who raped her. 
So I look at that facility. What made this guard think I can do it and get away with it? And I feel like that mindset seeps in when they see other people get away with it. And, quote, getting away with it is not uncommon in these facilities. They really don't know the power of, of these men and what they can actually do. For example, the case of, of the woman who attempted suicide, that man eventually became promoted to lieutenant. So by the time she was actually, she attempted suicide, he had already been promoted. So that sends a chilling effect for the entire detained population. Not only will we not hold these men accountable, we will promote these men. And few have been held accountable for sexual assault and ICE detention. Corchado believes that this is because addressing sexual violence is not in the best interest of detention centers. These companies make a profit off of detaining people. Um, and so I feel that when there's no government oversight um, or when it's minimal, when they, they're not, they don't sense the obligation to report and then experience repercussions based on what happens. 81% of ICE detainees are being held in private facilities operated by companies like CoreCivic, the GEO Group, MTC, and LaSalle Corrections. Immigrant detention has become a $2 billion industry with a reliance on the private prison infrastructure. Addressing abuses in power can potentially undermine profit in these facilities and their general operation, much of which has minimal government oversight. And as a result, these facilities have little incentive to addressing issues of sexual violence and believing the voices of detained women. It's not the culture to first believe a woman. So for one, I think they feel completely powerless. They don't think it'll go anywhere. And then they also fear that they're going to suffer the repercussions. And detainees have suffered the repercussions of reporting sexual violence, whether that's being put in solitary confinement or being continually intimidated and harassed by guards. And for Corchado, the indirect repercussion on her client was deportation. They feel like it's it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. And I'm sure that many women who may have thought of talking to me, I've already seen it since she was deported, have now told me, I'm not going to speak up. Uh, they're not going to take me seriously. In this pattern of being abused in detention and then being sent away sends a message to other detainees. What enrages me more about her deportation is that this facility is really like a train station. People are constantly coming and going. People are victimized and then leave. And that's what perpetuates this kind of corruption and abuse. And this feeling has been reinforced directly by those in these facilities. For Corchado's client, it was a guard telling her that no one would believe her. These stories reveal something about the systematic abuse of power in immigrant detention. And I don't think this is unique to El Paso. Um, I really believe that this is unique to ICE detention facilities. This isn't just an isolated incident. This is happening and there is in fact a pattern. And there have been hundreds of yearly complaints of rape, coerced sexual abuse, and continued harassment. For women who often arrive here with histories of sexual violence, their time in detention simply reinforces existing trauma. We see that 
these asylum seekers who are already traumatized are pushed back. So for someone who was raped in Mexico, she has a burden to show, look, this wasn't just an isolated incident. This will continue to happen to me if you keep sending me to this, this country where I will where I will likely be tortured or experience harm or persecution. And now she needs to be detained and live in this world where she has no freedoms, where it looks like prolonged detention is, is in store for her. When you then insert sexual assault and sexual harassment, it's, it's difficult for me to even begin to imagine what they're experiencing. Linda Corchado, Director of Legal Services at Las Americas. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Embering. This month marks the second year Monday Morning QB has been on the air. So we're sharing a piece from our archives that still carries relevance to the current day. As wildfires continue to rage in California, we reintroduce the idea of the pyrocene, that humankind's relationship with fire is ancient and that climate change-charged wildfires are only the most recent wrinkle. Here's reporter Chris Banker-Drowns. Stephen Pine, author and emeritus professor at Arizona State University, studies humans' history with fire on geological timescales. During the Pleistocene, the geological epoch stretching roughly from 2.5 million to just 10,000 years ago, human interaction with the world was moderated by ice. Advancing and receding glaciers shaped landscapes and defined ecosystems, while oceans periodically froze to connect continents. But in geologically recent terms, ice has been replaced as that dominant mediating force. The origin of the story is when humans got fire, and that required for them to be effective in terms of burning landscapes, you had to have conditions. And those conditions really be, start to become apparent when the ice age ends. So over the last 10,000 plus years, what we traditionally call the Holocene, I think is the, marks the beginning of what I call the Pyrocene, that is the interaction of people and fire. And you don't need agriculture and plows and axes. Uh, simply burning landscapes, uh, particularly in uh, places, uh, oh, wetter grasslands, tall grass prairies, sour felt, uh, places like that, you prevent uh, trees from coming up. And so you can affect the carbon content uh, just as much as actively clearing it. The pyrocene pine identifies involves three kinds of fires. First is natural fire, like wildfires, often caused by lightning strikes sparking dry brush. The second type is human burning of landscapes, whether it's for agriculture or to stymie the first kind of fire. A delicate balance has existed between these two fires for most of the pyrocene, with human burning denying wildfires some fuel, while also marginally reducing the amount of plant matter that can capture carbon from the atmosphere. Burning of living matter in this sense became part of the ecosystem itself. But Pine describes a third kind of fire, introduced in the last instant of the geological timescale, involving long dead fuels, fossil fuels. If you want to burn more, if you want more firepower, if, in effect, uh, you have to have more stuff to burn. And you, you can't 
you can only coax and coerce so much out of out of nature. So um, where we found that additional source was by going into the geologic past. In effect, we began burning what I think of as lithic landscapes as opposed to living landscapes. Lithic landscapes were once living landscapes that have now fossilized into coal, oil, gas, and so forth. And that has proved essentially an unbounded source of fuels, but it also broke um, the old constraints that had sort of bounded our burning, our, our competition with nature's fires. Because you can burn winter and summer, day and night, you know, through drought or deluge, all those other constraints that affected how fire burned, whether it was possible at all, all those are gone. And so that also means that you, you're effluent. The products of these fires are no longer contained within the old ecological checks and balances. So um, really, we've taken stuff out of the geologic past and we're exporting it into the geologic future. This effluence is more colloquially understood as carbon emissions, mostly carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. But talking about greenhouse gases as part of a pyrocene, rather than just in the geologically immediate language of climate change, helps us to think about how we can prevent the deadly fires seen in California, the Amazon, and Australia. It's not just about very quickly reducing our burning of these third kinds of fires, but also returning to a balance between the original two types. Half of the problem is that we have too much uh, of these bad fires. The other half of the problem that was set into motion by our conversion uh, to uh, fossil fuels is that we quit burning living landscapes, which we had done for all of our existence in various ways, and we removed fire. We actively either tried to substitute other things for it uh, or to actively suppress it, and we certainly quit doing what we had always done, which is to burn it in, in appropriate ways. And that means that a lot of places that should have had fire uh, didn't, and so they are ecologically uh, unhinged by that. This is this is as widespread, actually more widespread than than aggressive burning in places that have traditionally not had it at scale, say the Amazon. So we've really upset the whole pattern of fire in in living landscapes. Just like glaciers in the Ice Age carved out surrounding physical environments and operated as a bound on living landscapes, fire in the Pyrocene also shapes its environment. I mean, we're seeing massive smoke palls now, and many of these are, are not conveniently located out in the boondocks. They're in major metropolitan areas like Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra. I mean, when the post, Postal Service in Canberra refused to continued delivering mail because the air quality was so uh, so horrific, that's, that's kind of a marker. We, we're seeing fire interact with invasive species like uh, cheatgrass. There are a lot, there are a lot, there are tons in the U.S. There are many in Australia. And that, the, the capacity to, to burn is interacting in various ways to expand whole biomes. Uh, and replace previous biomes. So we're seeing sort of massive uh, biogeographic rearrangements. And then, of course, uh, when you factor in the climate change part of, of our burning, uh, we get changes in sea level, in this case, sea level rising rather than falling. And just as in the Pleistocene, you had the fifth great extinction, we're looking at a sixth great extinction coming at us uh, fairly quickly. 
To prevent the worst of the pyrocene, Pine says we must immediately cut back on burning these third fires and even engage in large-scale carbon capture through vast reforestation projects. But that alone might not be enough still to prevent deadly wildfires like those burning in Australia. So I, I actually see you think, okay, we're going to handle the pyrocene by, by dampening down on fires. I don't see that. What I would forecast is that the more we stop burning our third fire, the more second fire we're going to have to introduce. And that, you know, this is what we do as a species. This is, this is our, our ecological identity. Uh, so it's just sort of going back to our, our origins again, recapturing uh, that ability, that sense of ourselves as the keystone species for fire on the planet, which we are, and then begin learning again, relearning how, how to do that kind of burning. And as we look back in geological terms, so too must we look forward. Our 10,000-year human-defining epoch is but a blink of an eye for a planet billions of years old. Our immediate challenge may be the global warming caused by uncontrolled burning of long-dead lithic fuels, but our planet is, in geological history, a cold one. Yeah, we've been living in an interglacial, and we're sort of at the end of what normally that interglacial period would be. And the ice is sort of waiting out there. <laughs> so if in some, you know, in a, a kind of really weird paradoxical way, we may have been forestalling the advent of a new of a new ice age by our burning. If we continue, then we're just going to have a runaway fire age. But we may need to manage fire uh, a long-term climate to prevent, prevent the return of the ice. Stephen Pine, Emeritus Professor at Arizona State University and author most recently of Fire, A Brief History. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Last week, the state of Connecticut sued ExxonMobil Corporation over allegations that it knowingly misled investors and the public about its contribution to climate change thereby putting the corporation in violation of the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act. In doing so, Connecticut joins a growing movement to hold polluting industries liable for their role in driving the climate crisis. And to advance that effort, a global coalition of climate organizations released a first-of-its-kind liability roadmap. Sue Goodwin reports. The liability roadmap can easily be found on the internet at liabilityroadmap.org. It's a remarkable website that explains what liability means in the context of climate change, why it's worth fighting for, and describes a range of actions that can be used at the local, national, and international levels. A coalition of organizations are behind the effort, including the Indigenous Environmental Network, Friends of the Earth International, War on Want, and Corporate Accountability. Sri Ram Madhusudanan is Deputy Campaigns Director at Corporate Accountability, and he explains the thinking behind the roadmap. For us, liability is a very simple and intuitive concept. 
Um, and it's that the corporations who for decades, like Exxon and Shell, have known that burning fossil fuels would drive climate change, um, and who for decades have been misleading the public and blocking climate policy, should be the ones who are made to pay, as today we're seeing mounting costs related to climate impacts from wildfires to sea level rise and, and costs related to a just transition off of fossil fuels. So really what this coalition is putting forward is the, the only just and equitable way to ensure that um, climate justice is achieved is to ensure that the corporations who have knowingly fueled the climate crisis for so long are the ones who pay. Within the context of the climate movement, pursuing liability is just one strategy, but one that holds great potential. The definition of liability is the state of being responsible for something, especially by law. Within the climate change movement, this means there is no question as to who is contributing to climate change, making it that much easier to hold bad actors accountable, not only to provide restitution to those they harm, but also to not create even more damage. In order to ensure that we move forward to a, a world beyond fossil fuels, a world where climate justice is really centered, we must be clear about who's harmful and negligent often still abusive actions have largely been fueling this crisis. And the science shows us overwhelmingly that these emissions are from a handful of transnational corporations. About 100 corporations are responsible for more than 71% of global emissions. So, so this issue of liability and, and who pays, because people are paying right now often, far often with, with their lives, um, but the question of who pays is, is really central to climate justice and ensuring that we, we address this uh, problem in, in a just and equitable way. The strategies to pursue liability are numerous and varied. Filing a lawsuit, of course, is one of them. And while such cases can be challenging to fight, there is historic precedent they can work. There's a growing number of lawsuits from more than a dozen states and cities, including most recently the state of Connecticut, that are taking these big polluters, uh, fossil fuel industry corporations like Exxon and Shell, to court. And the impact that this can have is really, I mean, we, we see from history with uh, the parallels with the lawsuits against big tobacco in the 90s, how seminal this was for fueling an entire movement of really a tobacco control movement here in the U.S. and opening the way for ultimately the, the first of its kind, a global tobacco treaty internationally that you know, when put into full effect can stop some of the, the most pertinent and, and still globally occurring abuses of, of the tobacco industry. But the strategies you can find on the liability roadmap are hardly limited to lawsuits. Another strategy is to end business with polluters by withholding a corporation's license to pollute and abuse, especially those that are currently under public scrutiny or investigation. Another strategy is to demand public disclosure of any data and documentation from polluting corporations that has been previously withheld, making it possible to monitor and expose their wrongdoings. Also, there's a call to stop corporations from avoiding liability through preemption. So corporate preemption, one of the tried and true tactics of transnational corporations when they are finding policy that is uh, at odds with their own profiteering is to try and preempt or stop those policies by going to either a higher or different level of governance. So one example, unfortunately, we've been seeing are what are called liability waivers. 
uh, we've been seeing these examples even floated around um, in some of the recent stimulus negotiations where, for example, the Republicans or Mitch McConnell are saying that they will uh, only pass the, at different times the, the stimulus legislation if there are waivers for liability related to, as an example, COVID immunity, right? But what we're seeing is that this is actually happening across the country uh, at sea level. The U.S. even tried to push this agenda within the last round of the U.N. climate negotiations. And it's very simply something that must be stopped. It's, it's anti-democratic at its core, and it's fundamentally an attempt by the fossil fuel industry and others who've known their liability for so long to escape that accountability and to protect themselves from a rising tide of of liability action that they see coming. Securing liability isn't the only issue addressed in the liability roadmap. It also addresses what happens if and when restitution is provided. Guided by the principle to directly support the communities on the front lines of the climate crisis and place control of public finance in their hands, another strategy outlined in the roadmap is to establish community-based climate damage funds. It's an idea with a proven track record. Liability is not a new concept. It's, it's been practiced by communities around the world and in many different ways as a form of restitution and reparation of harm. Now, what these community-based climate damages funds and certainly the governance aspect of it here really builds off of a number of, of models that we've seen, especially in the aftermath of disasters, where there are community-controlled funds that really are responsible for um, distributing uh, maybe its recovery aid efforts, but really ensuring that at the end of the day that they're responsive to the needs of the, the communities on the ground, and they're accountable to them as well. And that's something that's, that's really essential when we look at liability, is that if or rather when we see money come out of some of these lawsuits, they really need to be accountable and distributed to those in the U.S. or globally who are very much experiencing the impacts of climate change right now and, and very much on the front lines. And, and it's no accident that those are predominantly Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color that have been facing these impacts and abuses by the fossil fuel industry for far too long. The liability roadmap is a work in progress, but it is more than ready to be a valuable tool for anyone interested in fighting climate change. We hope that people will use it by sharing it, by taking action, um, sending it to their elected officials, whether it's your member of Congress, members of city council, mayors, or, or state attorney generals. The only way we win and we build momentum as if more of us uh, join the fight. And then certainly it's it's something that we hope will continue to grow and become more powerful as more people engage with it. So encourage folks to check out liabilityroadmap.org and reach out to us with any questions or opportunities to continue to strengthen it and to make it even bigger. Sriram Madhusudanan is Deputy Campaigns Director at Corporate Accountability. And again, that website address is liabilityroadmap.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Activist scholar Barbara Smith has been active in and writing about movements for social, racial, 
and economic justice since the 1960s. Recently, she has turned her attention to how to dismantle white supremacy. In fact, she wrote in a Boston Globe column recently, the problem is white supremacy. What I was writing about was not only organized hate group activities, but the fact that white supremacy is systemic and it really kind of controls and determines the content of almost everything that happens in the United States. Whenever these terrible things happen, someone is bound to say, this is not who we are. But in fact, as you just pointed out, this has been going on for centuries and really looks like this is who we are, uh, that is the United States. It absolutely is who we are. We have so many examples, uh, decade after decade, century after century, that shows that uh, racial uh, violence, contempt for black people's lives, anti-black racism, and also racism and violence against other groups of people of color, that's just in the water. It's, it's embedded. And that's not to say that every single white person in the United States is a card-carrying, bigoted racist and would engage in those incredibly negative activities. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about like why when a black person is in need of pain medication that the white doctor in a high percentage of cases is not going to give an appropriate amount because they have this impression that black people feel less pain and also have thicker skin. So that's, it's like every day of it all. Wow, that's, that's an incredible, something to think about, that doctors routinely think that black people don't feel pain. There was a study that was done a few years ago that um, sometimes is, has been cited recently, I think, in articles and, and discussions to just show you how endemic and pervasive it all is. But what they were studying, who they were studying were young doctors, people who perhaps had only finished their internships and were at the residency stage, and they were quite astonished. I don't, well, I don't know if the researchers were astonished. I think everybody else was pretty astonished to see that a high percentage of young doctors who did not live through Jim Crow and segregation, that they still were doing those kinds of practices. There's an article about uh, these and other health-related uh, issues in the 1619 Project, which I know is a red flag, <laughs> but there's a really good article by Linda Villarosa about the uh, health implications of white supremacy. Now, when you mentioned the 1619 Project, uh, just recently, President Trump, speaking on the subject, said that, in fact, the United States is the jewel on the hill and that teaching anti-racism is a twisted uh, web of lies. He also says that teaching anti-racism is unpatriotic. So let's just think about that for a minute, that bringing information to developing minds and just others about the history of white supremacy and full throttle racial oppression in the United States, that's unpatriotic. And ignoring all of that so that the system of uh, racist oppression remains the same, that is patriotic. 
Black Lives Matter, that has to be said because clearly they don't. And white supremacy is the root. And that doesn't mean, like when I use the term white supremacy, if people read the article, the op-ed that was in the Boston Globe, you will not see a single negative word about any individual white person. There is no characterization of white people in any negative way. That is not what I was writing about. It wasn't what I was interested in. I wanted to write about systemic white supremacy, not microaggressions, not implicit bias, not prejudice, not race relations. I wanted to write about the system. It's an engine. I use the metaphor, it's an engine that drives the society. Now, is there anything that black people can do on their own that doesn't require a transformation in the thinking or the behavior of the white supremacist, which is the average white person? I think uh, we see much of what uh, black people are doing, which is to continue speaking out, to continue the protest and putting pressure on the system, to continue the organizing. I think the call for defunding the police, people have real issues with the concept of defunding uh, the police. But I think it's a really important way of framing what needs to happen because it's defund the the police so that those resources can go to other things that communities are lacking. So uh, there's no magic answers. It's just, are we going to stick with this and continue to speak out and to challenge. Um, I was just looking at uh, Twitter a few minutes ago, and there's colleagues of mine, people who I actually know, and others who are speaking out against what uh, 45 had to say about whether it's legitimate for us to teach about anti-racism and to use critical race theory. That's, you know, that's a step in the right direction. We have a long way to go, and that's one of the things I wrote about in that Nation article, that I'm not sure what it will take for us to get to the consensus that we need, that this system needs to be eliminated. But at least I put the idea out there that it should be. Fifty years later, uh, some black people are, are taking it upon themselves. I saw where in Georgia a group of black people bought 100 acres or so to build a, a a safe zone or a safe city for uh, black people to reside in. Uh, in Mississippi, um, near Natchez, there's a community of, of Muslims, which is called New Medina. Although the community mm-hmm. is declining, uh, it's still a, a concept that goes back to the Republic of New Africa, to the Nation of Islam idea of separation. And indeed, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, is the son of uh, the former mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, who was a leader of the Republic of New Africa. Is that a viable mm-hmm. solution? Is is black people uh, withdrawing to themselves in some safe zone or separate territory? Is that a potential viable solution? I don't know if it's a structural solution. I think it's a solution that can improve the lives, clearly, of the people who are able to take advantage of it. But I don't really see that as a structural solution for the millions of people of African heritage living in the United States. Uh, because 
it's, you know, I, I just don't know that that's possible. You know, like uh, what happens in urban areas? You know, not everyone wants to live, you know, in, you know, a, a new town in the rural south. Not that, you know, I think that's a perfectly wonderful thing to do. It, but the truth is not everybody's going to want to do that. How do we get uh, the system that exists, the power structure that exists, to do what it's supposed to do? And that's a long struggle. In fact, it's probably a revolutionary struggle. Wow, revolutionary. That's a, a word that we don't hear often. Well, it's one of my favorite words. <laughs> but my definition of that is not necessarily what you see in the movies are in the comic books. Um, revolutionary solutions are ones that get to the root of what the problems are. And I think that, you know, I, I grew up in the civil rights era and was involved in the civil rights movement, even though I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, there was a civil rights movement in the city of Cleveland, as uh, there were in many northern cities. And I was trained in nonviolence, and I don't really advocate uh, for violence. I think that uh, it would be interesting to see. I think a black feminist uh, revolution would probably be near to bloodless <laughs> because we are not about trying to hurt and harm people or dominate or we just want a better life for everyone. So it's, um, you know, it's like a thought experiment that I think that um, thinking about profound change for a system that's profoundly broken, I think that that's absolutely appropriate. Barbara Smith, author of The Hamer-Baker Plan and the concept of an anti-white supremacy Peace Corps, thank you for your reading of black history and thanks for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Esky. It's such an honor to speak to you. Our program is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. Please stay safe, mask up, and thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.